Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Peter Smiebert, Vice President of Biology at Tenex Genomics on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You started your research career in Australia, where you received your PhD at the Australian National University in Canberra in 2006. You then came to the US for a postdoc at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in 2008. After that, you were senior scientist at the Center for Personalized Cancer Therapeutics at Mount Sinai Hospital. After that, you joined the New York Genome Center, where you held various positions from 2015 to 2021. And in December 2021, you then joined Tenex Genomics as Vice President of Biology. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? It's a good question. I, in, I guess in high school, I did have one good biology teacher that I really, that I really enjoyed. Um, and I think also maybe I didn't enjoy the teachers that taught the sort of the harder science like the physics they were a bit more strict and, and not as not as fun um and so when i went to university I, i just all i wanted to do was to go into biology and so i you know just did a molecular biology uh, undergraduate uh, in, in australia it's a bit more specialized in australia you don't sort of just go to college and learn about everything you you sort of decide you're doing a science major right from the start um and then i had Uh, some fantastic lecturers uh, at the University of Adelaide, uh, Professor Rob Saint, especially standing out, is, is, is who I ended up then doing honours and PhD with, um, just really was, was somebody that sort of inspired me and showed me the sort of the power of, of genetics, uh, especially in, in, in being able to sort of answer biological questions. So you, I mean, you said you were Australian or you are Australian, sorry. Yeah, and uh, then, then, then you moved to, to New York and then now to, to California. Was that like part of the plan or is it just like you took the chances and then moved? Yeah, the, I mean, the plan, I think like a lot of people when they finish their PhDs is that they're going to go and do a postdoc for three years and then go get a faculty job somewhere. And that's the end of the story. Um, and I think going into postdoc, that was the plan for both my wife and I. So we both we both left Australia at the same time, uh, came to New York in 2008. Um, I did a postdoc at, at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering and she was at Cornell. Um, and we loved living in New York. It was wonderful. And we had, we had such a great time there and really enjoyed the science that we were doing. But I think during that process, we both realized that we probably didn't want to go down the academic track um, and started looking at other options partway through our, through our, uh, through our postdocs. But certainly, you know, I think initially the plan was to you know, return to Australia as soon as possible. Um, but I think we just, we really just enjoy living in, you know, having different explorations and living in different parts of the world. So we, we really, we, we really put down roots in New York. We ended up having three American children um, and really getting into the community that we lived in and, and just, and yeah, really enjoyed our lives there. And so stayed for a long time and only just recently moved moved out to California. But I imagine we'll get to this a bit later. <laughs> so coming to the science part of the episode, at the beginning of your research career, you focused on the characterization of microRNAs. But later on, you were a senior author on the initial paper of cellular indexing of transcriptomes, 
transcript tomes and epitopes by sequencing, um, short for sightseek or long for sightseek. And this is what I want to focus on during this uh, interview and this episode. Um, so how did it come that you started the de to develop sightseek and what was the initial idea behind it all? So um, my postdoc was really centered around post-transcriptional gene regulation. So working on microRNAs and then the, the, the four genetic screen that, that I did around microRNAs sort of led to a few different other mechanisms of of post-transcriptional gene regulation. Um, and then sort of fast forward to getting the role at the New York Genome Center, I, I'd, I'd sort of always found myself drawn to the, developing the technologies. Uh, very interested in the biology, but really enjoyed the sort of the tinkering that you could do and answering questions by sort of developing new tools. So this role came up at the New York Genome Center and you know it was a, it was a really appealing role. So I joined um, And only a few months after, we were really fortunate to get this wonderful CV across our desk from, from this guy, Marlon Stokius. Um, so we had similar sort of background. So he was also a model organism uh, researcher. He was working uh, at Yale at the time, uh, working on C. elegans, post-transcriptional gene regulation. And it was really, I mean, you know, full credit to Marlon. He was really the person who came up with the idea of, you know, what if we measure proteins at the same time as we measure, as we me measure RNA? And he really, you know, drove this product, uh, product, listen to me, I'm already in the company now. Um, he, he really drove this project uh, right from the start. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a wonderful collaboration, really our, you know, scientific interests really aligned. And um, yeah, he just, you know, had the, had the basic concept of, of we should be able to stick an oligo on an antibody and, and use that to, uh, to measure Proteins. I mean, initially, we had sort of grand schemes of we could measure all proteins, and then we we realized pretty quickly the the fundamental limitations of trying to get at intracellular proteins while also maintaining uh, cellular RNA integrity. So we sort of dialed back and focused on on surface proteins initially. Yeah, I think I mean if you dive into the sequencing technologies and so on, it's easy to, or more easy to to sequence like DNA or RNA because you can just amplify them. But if when it comes to protein, I, mean, I guess that's like the, the major difference or the major pitfalls then if you want to characterize um, proteins because you just can't like uh, do a PCR on proteins, right? Not yet. <laughs> I'm hopeful one day someone's going to figure something like that out. But uh, yeah, we're, we're still a fair way away from that, I imagine. Um, Yeah, and you know, there's just we, we immediately realize that there's just these inherent advantages. Once you can move protein detection into the sequencing space, then you, you know, you get rid of all the issues of fluorophores overlapping, which you might have in, uh, in you know, flow cytometry or imaging-based methods, um, and really, theoretically, unlimited multiplexing. And we've, over time, we've sort of really pushed the limits of this, and you know, we've been fortunate to work with different partners. And again, we might get to this a bit later. Who have really taken this and run with it and produced, you know, large catalogs of oligoconjugated antibodies. And it's really interesting that as far as we can see at this point, we're, we're still not at any, we're still not at the stage where, you know, the, the, the giant soup of antibodies is actually having any negative impact on, on the measurement of any one protein, as far as we can tell. Yeah, that's very interesting uh, that, that yeah, it's, it doesn't get too crowded for antibodies to detect stuff or proteins yeah i it it still sort of blows my mind and maybe there's just something about my failure to imagine uh, my failure to imagine the sort of the relative size of all the different components but yeah it, it is so far it still seems to work pretty pretty well uh, up to and i think the most we did is about 240 different 
um, specificities at the same time. And I think there's a few publications out now that are even extending beyond that. Yeah, maybe we can go more into details of the SightSeek methods. Can you maybe walk us through the workflow of the SightSeek protocol? Sure, sure. So I think I think one of the key things that we that we sort of recognized almost by accident is that you know, for a while we actually spent a bit of time stressing about how we would get uh, the reverse transcriptase enzyme that's inherent in these single cell sequencing methods to to barcode a DNA oligo. Uh, it turned out the secret was just reading old papers and recognizing <laughs> that reverse transcriptase actually works very, very well with DNA as a template as well as with RNA as a template. So once we sort of overcame that, it's not even really a hurdle. It's just a, it's just a bit of knowledge that, that we didn't have. And then, then all of a sudden we had it. Um, uh, the simple matter of just conjugating an, an oligo onto an antibody and making it so that it was compatible with the, the so that we had a poly A stretch in the antibody Uh, sorry, on the oligo that would anneal to the poly T primer that's inherent in all of the original three prime RNA seq based methods, uh, and then within the droplet, the extension reaction happens, and you get a barcoded oligo or antibody derived tag, as we would call it, um, that that would reveal the identity of the antibody that that oligo was attached to, and also the cell in which in which it was based. Um, and I should say that you know we started doing this. We, we were fortunate to have really early access to DropSeq. So uh, at the time we were just getting this spun up, uh, the, the DropSeq paper hadn't, I think, officially yet come out, but Rahul Satija, who was part of that effort, for, you know, that was led by uh, Evan, Evan McCosco and Steve McCarroll at the Broad, um, had sort of, you know, some early information as being part of that effort. And was we were setting this up in the Technology Innovation Lab at the New York Genome Center, which I guess I should rewind a little bit and say that this, this lab at the New York Genome Center was... I think I'm really grateful that, that the Genome Center had the vision to set this lab up. Um, it was really envisaged as this, as this lab that could both develop novel and interesting technologies, but also enable, you know, be that sort of wet lab nexus that, that a lot of the faculty at the New York Genome Center could collaborate with, especially those who were coming from a sort of more computational, um, who had more computational strength. And so we we had you know we had budget we could hire staff and we were at that at that time we were sort of freed from the having to write grants because we were you know we didn't have a track record we were we were really getting set up from nothing um, and so we you know we we hired a really diverse group of people microfluidics engineers uh, chemists molecular biologists and you know, were able to sort of tinker and and play with a bunch of different things so we initially set this up on 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 the drop seek methodology and then. We had it. We had it up and working, and then 10x Genomics announced that they had single cell three prime, and we were. I think. We, I think we were one of the first sites to get one of the 10x, uh, the, the original 10x gem code instruments for well, the single cell instrument. Um, and so we we very quickly ported. We recognized that this was likely to take off, and we really wanted to make methods that would be used by a wide, you know, wide variety of people. So we very quickly adapted the method to be to be compatible with with 10x as well. Um, I should say, I guess one of the real advantages here is that intrinsic to all of these uh, single cell three prime methods, at least the ones at the time, is that there's a sort of a size separation point. Once you make your once you make your your, your cDNA that comes from the, the cell's mRNA, you do a size selection, you remove sort of all the low molecular weight stuff that isn't informative for the transcriptome. Um, but the beauty is that the, these antibody tags are in that low molecular weight uh, fraction. 
So we could actually physically separate them just by a very simple spry bead separation, uh, meaning that we could you know, then process the RNA library or the RNA-seq library in one tube and the antibody tag library in the other tube without making any sacrifices of, of the of the sensitivity. We, we didn't have to sort of you know, split the sample in two or anything like that. We could really get a full uh, transcriptome with no loss of sensitivity and capture the, the protein content at the same time. Because it was already in the, the protocol itself yeah it was kind yeah. of it was the tra it was the trash that was that was otherwise thrown <laughs> out and it was it was in that it was in that fraction so we just you know devised a way to sort of enrich for the for the actual molecules that, that were informative from that um and we were sort of we were off to the races so you said that uh, you got hold of the one of the first 10x genomics devices but the method itself is not necessarily limited to those devices right it's more a universal approach Yeah, so we, we we as I said, we initially started this out in in in, uh, in DropSeq. We've we've applied this to plate-based methods. We had a, a plate-based single-cell method up and running at the Genome Center for a while. Uh, back when it was still operational, we we ran this on Illumina and BioRed's DDSeq method. Um, but it's really, I think it's really on on 10x where most people use this. I think it just reflects reflects what people in the market use. Um, and of course, 10x themselves have. Well, I guess this is probably a good time to segue that you know we we were we were originally conjugating these antibodies, uh, these oligos to antibodies in our lab, and we were not protein biochemists, so we sort of uh, we we tried commercial methods. Uh, a wonderful chemist in the lab, Brian uh, Brian Loomis, um, uh, figured out a, a really nice way of uh, conjugating uh, oligos to antibodies, which we which we could really do at much higher throughput. Um, but then BioLegend partnered with New York Genome Center and, and worked really hard to put a lot of their flow cytometry catalog, uh, make compatible with, with molecular, uh, essentially molecular cytometry. Um, so they developed this total seek range of products. Um, and then they, in turn, partnered with 10X Genomics and, and 10X has now their, their feature barcode, um, Uh, methodology, which is which is you know conceptually very similar to 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 the original SiteSeq method that's sort of being quite widely used now. So I think one of the first samples it was used on was hematopoietic cells because I'm, I mean that's like a, a rather nice model system for for that. But what are some other cell types or sample types that uh, SiteSeq might be effective with? Yeah, and the beauty of The beauty of doing tech dev is that you can work on the easiest possible samples that don't, <laughs> where, you, where you can avoid all the sample prep challenges. So cells that are already dissociated work wonderfully. So peripheral blood and and essentially you know uh, bone marrow are really the easiest to work with because the cells are already in single cell suspension. I think anytime you need to dissociate cells, you are disrupting something on the on on the surface a lot of the times you need some sort of a protease to disrupt which of course will to some extent deplete some of the surface proteins um i think people have used sitesick on a wide variety of tissues there's just there is just that 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 caveat that anything that you do to dissociate the cells into a single cell suspension if it's going to affect the the, the cell surface proteome then you you know you you, you might have you you, you may specifically cleave certain proteins you're trying to detect um, or just have a general uh, depletion of, of certain proteins. So there's, I think for for non-blood and non-bone marrow samples, it, it, it will require some 
you know, optimization for each okay, sample yeah. to, to, to make sure the markers you're interested in are still there or, or you know, that cell types are represented or not being depleted by the, by this, by the sample prep method. So the, yeah, I mean, it, it's already challenging to analyze like sequencing data, <laughs> but mm -hmm. then you like get two data sets of sequencing kind of data. Um, but how can you analyze those data? Is there like a tool available? Do you need some kind of service to, to, really interpret those data? Is it easy to analyze the data? Well, um, it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's difficult. And I think part of this is because there's a lot of really good people. Rahul Satija's lab has really led the charge on, on, on developing uh, methods for analyzing uh, RNA and protein data simultaneously. Um, but there's also, you know, near Yosef's lab has done a lot of work on this. Um, 10X Genomics themselves support this by their feature barcoding through Cell Ranger. Um, so there's 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 pretty well established ways of doing this now. Um, there there are there are fundamental differences between the protein data and the RNA data that come from the same cells. The, the protein data is extremely robust in general. These markers that we're looking at are very highly expressed. There's a reason why people have used these as flow cytometry markers for many years because they are often very cell type specific and often very easy to detect. And the in contrast. Sorry, and, that, Sorry uh, and the knowledge from the facts is then also advantages to this method, right? I mean, it's basically if the antibody works in facts, then it should also work here. In our experience, yes, that's that's been the case for especially for the vital cells, for cells that you haven't fixed. It's it's really the one the correlation is essentially one to one that if an antibody works on flow, it it works on it works on site seek. Um, so yeah, but the, the 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 difference in sort of information density is is really kind of striking. The the you really do get a lot of counts for for most. Or if a protein is expressed, you get a lot of counts. In contrast, where you know in single cell RNA sequencing, it's often it's often pretty sparse um, for any one particular gene. But I think in a way that's I mean that's that's what makes the method pretty useful is that that you have this sort of robust frame for, for different cell types where if you if you have an antibody panel that nicely describes the um, the tissue type you're interested in it sort of provides a frame that you can that you can cluster cells in and there's you know you, at the very simplistic way you can sort of cluster on RNA and look at protein or cluster on protein and look at RNA but there's a lot of these joint Joint methods that that you know Rahul's lab and particularly Yuhan Hao have um, have have worked on 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 making you know, to, to sort of to make the whole be greater than the sum of the parts. So kind of also using the one um, readout as a quality control for the other one. So kind of orthogonal yeah. methods. Yes, I mean certainly. In, in the early days, there's you know we 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 spent a lot of time doing that, looking for the the correlation between between the particular transcript and the particular protein. Um, I guess you could argue though, that if, if, if the correlation is just one-to-one, -one, then you're not really learning any, anything new. So in other cases, it's, it's really interesting where you can see evidence of post-transcriptional gene regulation, which as I mentioned at the start is actually the reason we, we sort of became interested in this in the first, in the first place. Although I don't think we've ever really, we, we've certainly seen signs of interesting post-transcriptional gene regulation for specific markers, but it was never something that we actually followed up on in any uh, in any any specific way. So, do we maybe have an example, or or what type of biological insight ca insights can be gained by examining um, both ways, like gene expression and cell surface protein data? 
There's some there's some examples in 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 a couple of our papers where there are certain clusters of cells that you just you, you don't see if you look at RNA alone or protein alone, but if you sort of integrate together, you can see these 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 cell types. And and we sort of we mentioned this in in the in the how and how et al paper from a couple of years ago now. Um, there's a particular I think CD46 positive uh, set of cells that that you know be uh, sorry CD8 and CD4 positive T cells. That seem to be tissue resident, and we, we're not we're still not exactly sure what they do, but there's something that they that show up that we really that we can see by one method and not the other. Um, I think there's another another example in our original paper where we could use using that by measuring both at the same time, we could we could uh, demarcate different cell types that that we just that we just couldn't see by RNA seq alone. A- another good example is. And there's only a few of these examples because we are somewhat limited by the by the what protein reagents are available. But you know, sort of a classic example is CD45 RA and RO, which marks sort of different different uh, differentiation states of, of immune cells. And this is just a splice variant of the CD45 gene. So when you're looking at three prime based RNA sequencing, you don't even capture this particular the the, the, the cassette exon that, that demarcates the two different transcripts. But by but by SiteSeq or, or ReapSeq or any other of these methods that that um, measure protein, you can very clearly see these these different types. Are there any important quality control metrics that you need to examine when working with SiteSeq data? SiteSeq data. We we do think it's important. So initially, we 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 did a we did a control, which is probably not practical for for everybody, but we. we would spike some mouse cells into a human experiment and look for you know the the, the cells. In theory, they shouldn't stay. If it's a very human-specific antibody, it shouldn't stay in the mouse cells. So that was a good way of determining background. I think it's more common to also use isotype controls, and that's that's something that's inherent in all the panels that biologin cells as well. So these, you know, in the same way that you would use an isotype control in in flow cytometry to just get an overall measure of the stickiness of the of, of the of the reagents in the in, so you can sort of decouple what's sticky versus what's actually binding. Um, specifically the way the antibody is meant to bind. Well, we now, when we now look further than SiteSeq, um, there were further improvements on the method. Um, I mean, there were several papers describing several um, advancements. And the first improvement right on to SiteSeq was cell hashing. So what did this add to the method? Yes, this is um, something we realized pretty pretty early on. Once we got SiteSeq working, we, we sort of had this realization that we could this could actually be a really cool way of just multiplexing samples. Um, and to be honest, we actually we messed around for a long time with different ways of attaching an oligo to an antibody. Because ideally, if you want this, you in, instead of looking at a, a specific protein on a specific cell type, you want to just paint every cell in the sample consistently and sort of as you know as highly as as highly as you can. Um, so we tried a bunch of different lectins and uh you know, lipids and other stuff we couldn't get them to work particularly well so we just went we went back to a cocktail of antibodies which would which had worked well for us in the past and so we we just made a, a cocktail of antibodies that were um to, to very highly expressed proteins uh, conjugated them to an antibody together and i think an important thing is we put a different uh, amplification handle on them so that if you ran these together with SiteSeq, you could make a completely different sequencing library um, which means that you, you didn't need to worry so much about whether you would swamp your your site seq library with with your hashing signal. You could you could precisely tune how much of each you sequence. So the way that hashing works is you essentially have a a, 
a barcode um, that is associated with the cell. Uh, and so then you associate any, when, when that same cell barcode has the, that predominant hashtag, then you can say that, well, it, it, it came from this particular sample that you labeled with that hashtag. It has the advantage that you can use this to detect doublets. So if you get two cells that end up in the same droplet or well or whatever method you're using, um, and you see two predominant hashtags, you can say this was this was this was a cross-sample doublet, and you can discard that cell for your analysis. And so the advantage of that then is that firstly you get cleaner data because you can unequivocally uh, determine a decent percentage of the doublets. Um, but also you can load more cells into your into your run and it's sort of more economical, at least from the sample prep side of things. Uh, there's obviously a trade-off with, by doing this, you also increase your doublet rate. You have to throw out more cells and you, you waste more money on sequencing. But I think uh, we we and others, and, and I mean, we built this method. It was really inspired by, by Jimmy Yee's work using uh, he coined a term called demuxlet where he, used or his group used to um, figure out that they could put uh, samples from different patients, mix them together and deconvolve which transcript came from which cell, uh, sorry, which, which cell came from which patient based on expressed SNPs that were, that were different between the different cell, uh, between the different uh, samples and also could deconvolve doublets. So a lot of the calculations based on, you know the the loading concentration and how many singlets you can recover and how many doublets you can recover were were directly applicable to to the method from from Jimmy. So yeah, and, no, and, and I also I, oh yeah, I should also just mention that you know, on the back of hashing, there's been a bunch of uh, other folks who've who've come up with similar methods. There's there's some really cool work from uh, from Chris McGuinness and Dave Patterson uh, out of Zev Gartner's group on on MultiSeq, which is sort of a this cool locked-in lipid method that, that achieves the same thing and some work from uh, Jace Gehring and Leo Pachter's group using uh, click chemistry to click an oligo onto the onto the, um, uh, onto the surface of a, of a fixed cell to, to achieve the same ends. Yeah, I think you can get really creative with uh, um, attaching more and more information and barcodes and adapters to like one sequencing piece <laughs> let's say and yeah. where do you think is the limit is there like is this the limits of pcr then in the end or what is when i mean you could like i barcode the cell i barcode like the patient i barcode the, the cohort whatever um where, where's the limit so i actually think the limit i think we're sort of pushing up against the limit for these for these methods where the barcode is is associated with the cell i think you you sort of you run into this limit where You can save on sample prep up to a certain point, but then you create so many doublets and multiplets that you have to throw away because you can't deconvolve the sequences within the multiplet. Um, so I think those methods are good and they've, they've sort of had their time, but I, I think there's there's a bunch of new methods coming out that are um, where the, the barcoding is inline. Um, so by that, I mean that, that the barcode is actually inherent for every read you actually get from that cell, whether it be protein or or transcript or both. Um, this was sort of, uh, this is the, the single cell, the, the combinatorial indexing based methods uh, are, are, are good examples of this, like SkyRNA-seq and SplitSeq. Um, but I think, uh, and then there's, uh, what's the other one? SkyFi RNA-seq from Christoph, Christoph Box Lab as well is, is another good example of this. Um, I think all these methods seem to have 
fairly significant trade-offs in terms of in terms of quality of data. Um, uh, but you know, in terms of being able to multiplex really high, it's a, it's it's a great way to go. And this is something that there's a there's a fixed RNA seq product that's coming out from 10x Genomics very soon that's been announced that that makes takes advantage of this, and I think is I think is going to be a really fascinating way to. To, to move the needle forward here. And, and honestly, when I was interviewing in, at, at 10X maybe six months ago, this was one of the methods that really just made my eyes pop out of my head and say, wow, this is this is really, really impressive. Yeah, we already talked with Ben about that. So um, that's something that uh, will right. come out soon, yeah. So next site seek was then expanded into Excite Seek. <laughs> yeah. <And> the names <laughs> get even more more uh, exciting. <laughs> uh, could you briefly explain nice. how this expands the site seek possibilities? Yeah, so uh, in this case, we we're again fortunate to have another great person join uh, the Technology Innovation Lab. This is Eleni Mimitu, who who joined us also as a postdoc at Sloan Kettering. Actually, she was just a floor above where I, where I was doing my postdoc, and we we briefly overlapped. Um, but she uh, she came in from a background of uh, really great work in both PhD and postdoc doing in in DNA repair. Um, And it's just a really creative person who's made a bunch of different methods. And, and uh, this was sort of around the time that uh, 10X Genomics had released their, their five prime VDJ immune profiling uh, kit. So this is instead of a three prime tag single cell RNA sequencing, this is now a five prime tag single cell RNA sequencing where you the, the barcode is appended by a template switch oligo. Um, The, for tag counting, it doesn't make much of a difference. So, sorry, for transcript counting, it doesn't make a, a huge amount of difference. But the key, the key factor, the, the reason this is the immune profiling kit is it, this enables you to then specifically enrich for the for the rearranged uh, immune receptor transcripts from the T cell receptor and the B cell receptor. Um, so it's a it's a really interesting kit that that's been used by a lot of people for immune profiling, and we figured that we could probably make this compatible with with protein detection as well very quickly did some proof of principle experiments designing a new set of oligos that would be compatible um and you know got the protein detection to work pretty quickly did hashing at the same time because we, we had that up and running but we also recognized that that the advantage of this is that you're no longer limited to detecting poly a uh polyadenylated rnas because you're not fixed by The, the, the prime that initiates the reverse transcription. And we thought a really good example, a really good place to, to test this out would be to take this into the realm of single cell CRISPR screening. So the, the guide RNAs, guide RNAs for, for Cas9 is variable at the five prime end. That, that's, the, that's the region that directs Cas9 to, to its uh, target in the genome. And then downstream of that is this, is this constant scaffold sequence. And so that's a perfect, perfect um, substrate for us to design a primer against, allow reverse transcription and template switching to happen. Um, and we you know, found out, again, really, really relatively quickly that we could detect these guide RNAs really, really well. They're expressed extremely highly. They um, many, many copies per cell, and we could uh, capture them very robustly. And again, in a, in a separate library type that was separate from the hashing uh, hashtags, it was separate from the protein uh, protein tags or antibody derived tags and again separate from from RNA so we're sort of lay, layering on another level of, of, of analytes that we could detect from a from a single cell 
Yeah, but another thing that uh, you then added, and uh, this might seem obvious to epigenetics folks, but <laughs> I don't know if it's obvious to other folks, is that um, yeah, you, you now looked at proteins on the surface, you looked at RNA, and then obviously what is left is the DNA in the nucleus, right? So, so you could do something with the DNA still. And uh, an obvious candidate is there, um, ATAC-seq. Um, and what you write on your website is um, ASAP-seq is to SC, uh, so single-cell ATAC-seq, what side-seq is to single-cell RNA-seq. So mean it, does that mean that um, yeah, you integrated single-cell ATAC-seq first with a protein marker? Yeah, so this one has a bit of an interesting backstory. So, you know, 10X had released their single cell attack seek kit. And we, we, we'd thought about we could, we could try and detect proteins together with attack. That shouldn't be, shouldn't be too much of a problem. And then we, we kind of had this failure of imagination that we're like, well, this is all done on nuclei, nuclei so we can't really get anything on the surface. And there's, there's some markers for nuclear proteins. And so we, we we got a few antibodies in. We conjugated some antibodies. We could see we could see some interesting, um, you know, somewhat interesting effects. We could, we could sort of we could just make out protein that that was specific. It didn't work particularly well. And so we were working on other projects, and we just sort of shelved it for a while. Um, and then we then we saw a talk. Uh, Caleb Laroe, from who at the time was in VJ Sankaran's lab and, and Jason Bradrostro's lab at the Broad, came and gave a talk and presented this work that he'd done on a method called MTSC attack seek. So this is single cell attack, but deliberately preserving mitochondrial DNA. And it's quite funny actually, because for, for the longest time, people have been trying to get rid of mitochondrial DNA yeah. from, from attack seek because it was this sort of nuisance that was useless. And, and Caleb and, and life Ludwig, he's, he's really close collaborator. Um, they, they recognized that if they could uh, sequence mitochondrial DNA to sufficient depth, um, they could actually use this to effectively infer the clonal relationship between cells in a population because these mitochondrial genomes uh, accumulate mutations over time with every cell division. Um, so he presented this data where that actually fixed individual cells uh, as whole cells in order basically to, to retain some mitochondria around, around, the, around the nucleus, performed a tax seek, it worked well, and they could capture this great... Um, Uh, you know the, the, this excellent uh, clonal information. Yeah, so we had this realization, and we, we we went back to the whiteboard in the office and and realized that we could just stain the cells with these antibodies beforehand, um, then fix them, and then perform essentially this MTSC attack seek protocol. But we're also we're also kind of lazy, and at this point, BioLegend had had put out a massive catalog of you know total seek A, B, and C. You know, three different flavors of, of oligo-labeled antibodies. You know, and there were probably 200 of each. Uh, and we really didn't we didn't think there was much of an appetite for making total seek DEFG. Um, and again, it was one of these moments where very quickly we recognized that there's some unique properties about about the way the single cell seek method works, and that you sort of did this linear amplification in the droplets. It's not it's not a it's not a one and done uh, anneal extend like it is to reverse transcription. Um, and so we realized that there was an opportunity to essentially convert within the droplet the oligo tag, oligo tagged antibody into something that could be compatible with the attack seek kit. So we devised this this bridging oligo strategy where we spike in this bridging oligo that's blocked at its three prime end, but it serves as a substrate. So in the initial cycles of amplification within the droplet, it gets converted. It converts that oligo into something that can then um, 
associate with associate with and be extended by the oligos that come from the from the attack seek beads. So once that once we sort of realized this, we 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 got on the phone with 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 Caleb quickly and and really quickly hit it off and had a you know started collaborating. And this was one of these really amazing projects where um, I think it went from conception to preprint in about. 11 months or something like this and and it was and it was great it was really we pulled in a bunch of different people yeah it was one of these one of these situations where uh Caleb and Life had already been working with with this guy Kelvin Chen in in Shimon Sakaguchi's lab uh in in Japan and he was doing some functional work as well and wanted to apply this this method to to some of the functional work he was doing and so we collaborated with him as well and so we, you know this it was this great big happy family all across the world and of people who had almost never met in person. This is all. This all essentially happened uh, during the well, towards right before the pandemic, and then was finished off sort of during during the early stages of, of the of COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we 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 got this work together, and it just it it was again one of these things that just worked relatively well. Um, and then actually, right. Right as we were publishing it, we knew that 10x was releasing their their multi-ohm kit, and so this now, you know, instead of just being attack, it was attack plus RNA. And of course, we we thought, well, we we want to do this as soon as we can. Um, the way that the multi-ohm worked, we could actually just we really didn't need to do much. We, it was really just it was just doing site seek essentially because it was you could just capture the poly A barcoded antibodies in the RNA component of the multi-ohm kit. And from what we'd learned about sample prep uh, from our from our ASAP seq work, it just it just worked nicely. Um, and I should say at the same time, this this very similar method was 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 done by uh, Pete Skeen's group uh, at the Allen Institute for Immunology, uh, and they've called this method T seq. And then your your method is dogma seq, right? Yeah, this this is this one's called dogma seq, which was sort of a it was a, a shout out to this showing gene regulation across the central dogma. Um, but it also, uh, the acronym worked out really well where Eleni essentially said she was done overfitting genomics methods acronyms. So <laughs> it, we, we, that one, it never made it into the paper. Unfortunately, we were tempted to sneak it in after revisions, but we, we, we decided not to in the end. So now you're able to look at, uh, chromatin structure because of open chromatin, then you are, mm -hmm. yeah, and you can look at RNA gene expression and you can look at surface protein markers. So this really then opens up uh, the whole characterization of the, of the cell, right? Yeah. And, and actually I should add that like we also sort of collaborated with and, and worked with in the early stages of getting the ASAT-seq work done. There's a lot of folks who were adapting 10x's uh, ataxic kit to do single cell cut and tag and so we worked with bing bingji zhang who's a a, a postdoc in uh, rahul satish uh, sorry a grad student in rahul satish's group uh actually a postdoc i'm sorry bingji if i got that wrong um either way i got it wrong uh so uh, in order to essentially make the same method now be uh, now be compatible with with the cut and tag method and i think that just got published a couple of maybe a, a month or so ago uh, in nature biotech so um yeah so now you know protein detection can now work with rna um can be used for multiplexing can be used for attack seek can be used for attack and rna together and also for for looking at uh, um 
uh, epigenetic modifications of the uh, essentially of histones at this point. So, but you can't combine attack and cut and take, right? So that's <laughs> that's not something that will work. I th there are some methods out there that 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 describe this. I mean, I think part of it is that the signals cannibalize each other. Um, so you, you kind of can, maybe you can get a, a cut and tag signal on top of your attack seek signal. Um, this is something that actually Ivan Raimondi, who's a, who's a scientist in the senior scientist in the, um, technology innovation lab now has sort of pioneered, pioneered, pioneered this with this NTT seek. This is nanobody tagged, um, uh, cut and tag essentially where you can multiplex cut and tag. Um, and so that's, you know, this can be coupled with a tactic as well, as long as you don't mind having, having your cut and tag signal sitting atop your, um, your tactic signal. Okay. So, um, in the interest of time, I have two more questions. Um, so you were, so you were saying that, um, right now you're focusing on surface markers. So, on, uh, yeah, mark, uh, proteins on the surface of the cell, but what about intracellular proteins? Is this something that you're looking into or what is the, the problem here right now? Is it uh, I mean, inher inherent to the workflow or? <laughs> so I, I'm not really looking into any of this at this point. So <laughs> about a year ago, I actually left the New York Genome Center and joined a, a biotech company, Immuni, based in New York. Um, and then actually through no fault, nothing against Immuni, but 10X actually approached me in July of last year. And it just, the job really made sense for what I was interested in doing. And it made a lot of sense for, for my family and my wife and our kids to, to move out to California. So I'm now, I'm sort of, you know, this is more of a historical talk about stuff that, that we did at the New York Genome Center. So I'm not really, I'm personally not pursuing this at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, we, the intracellular work is was definitely something we were super interested in early on. Um, there's been some, been some, cool work on this actually we, we in our asap seek paper we demonstrated that you could get intracellular markers quite well the beauty is that dna is is not as labile as, as rna and so if you're already fixing and permeabilizing the cells you can get access to some of these markers but also uh hattie chung from aviva Gebs group has published a method called insight seek um looking at intracellular markers together with with rna um And uh, Will Greenlee's group as well has actually put out a method they call NeatSeq that's, um, that's, uh, that uses a pretty nifty trick actually where they use a single-stranded DNA binding protein to sort of shield the, 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 the DNA oligo and stop it from, from interacting with just the cellular milieu or whatever, whatever it interacts with that causes a lot of the background. Um, and they combine that with 10X's multi-ohm kit to look at intranuclear proteins together with attack and, and RNA. So I think um, it, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes because the other thing is that you know, 10X's new fixed RNA product is extremely compatible with this. And this is, I think, this is a really interesting uh, avenue uh, that, 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 that we and others can, can pursue in terms of trying to get at intracellular markers together with a robust measure of the transcriptome. But the, the problem is for any time you're doing this with a sort of live cell or fixed or, or RT-based method is that in, by fixing and permeabilizing the cells, you're inherently damaging the RNA to some extent. And so your RNA readout will inevitably suffer to some degree. Um, I think this is where the, the probe-based method, that the, the, the new 10X fixed RNA kit is potentially really powerful here because even if the RNA is a bit fragmented, or fixed in place, you don't need RT to read through it. 
if it's a bit broken, it doesn't actually matter. You can you can still detect. Um, you, you're counting, but you can still detect the RNA quite well. So I think the fact that you're fixing and permeabilizing and, and you've got ready access to the in, inside of the cell, I think this might really open up the ability to to get at the intracellular proteome together with the transcriptome. So I don't know if you or how much you want to talk about this, but what are you working on right now, and what are your visions for the future? <laughs> um, I guess yeah, my my visions are shared with Tenex's visions at this point, <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's really exciting. I mean, I, I have to say, you know, I, I was I was I was super excited to 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 come to Tenex and and sort of see behind the curtain, having worked for you know five odd years on Tenex's products and getting to know a lot of the people. Um, really being able to come inside and see how, see what the you know the, how products are developed and and the sort of the, the rigor and, and the thought process that happens is really is really inspiring. It's a it's a great place to come to work every day. Um, uh, in terms of visions for the future, I mean, I think the visions of 10x are, are pretty well stated. I mean, we you know we really do think this is the century of biology. Um, we really want to lead. The, we want to lead people's ability to uh, or enable people to, to interrogate biology in new ways. And you can see, you know, in, in the, we want to continue to expand our offerings in the, in the single cell space, both in terms of the, you know, plexi that people can look at, uh, the, the different analytes, the, the number of, uh, the number of cells people can analyze. We want to keep increasing this and also just the sensitivity. Um, but then of course, we're you know, moving very much into the spatial realm. So biology is also spatial. Um, there's only so much you can do with dissociated cells, but actually understanding the context of where cells are in tissues and how they function uh, as a sort of, you know, as a tissue unit is is really fundamental to how our bodies work or or don't work in the case of disease. Um, and so, you know, we've we've obviously got a lot of work existing in in the spatial field, and and you've probably you've probably seen some of the early work that's that started to come out on combining protein detection with with uh, our Visium platform. So there was a, a method actually, again, actually this was co-led by Marlon Sturkius who, who joined 10X himself two and a half years ago, maybe three years ago. Um, and together with Dan Landau's group, who's another <laughs> close collaborator of mine from, from the New York days, um, they just had a nice method come out called SPOTS recently, which, which combines... Uh, protein detection together with the, the Visium platform. And there's also, you know, there's a product that's been announced that will come out in the middle of this year from 10X directly looking at uh, proteins together with fixed uh, fixed RNA on the spatial platform. And then of course we have the the, the Xenium platform, which is the, the in-situ platform that's that's also been announced and is, is, is due to come out at the end of the year um, where we're actually getting down into the you know, truly the subcellular resolution looking at, at individual uh, molecules um, and so I think the future is very bright and there's a bunch of different directions that, that that will go in and I sort of I like to think about this as the you know the Xenium platform now is where 10x's single cell platform was at the start of 2016 and uh, you know came out with a single product and has really rapidly expanded into a into a into a whole um a whole ecosystem of, of different products around around the single cell space, and I, you know, the, our roadmap is very clear that that's the direction we want to head with 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 in situ as well. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, place to end this interview. Thank you, Peter, for your time and for being on the show. No, thanks for having me. It was it was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. 
you can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.